Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome into the first In the Shift episode of 2021. We're already in February, uh, and uh, I was going to, I had a lovely little intro lined up for this episode about how, you know, in New Zealand we're living this kind of surreal COVID-free life while the rest of the world uh, carries the weight of this pandemic in really kind of difficult and hard circumstances. The strange thing is we've just had a snap lockdown, so we're back We're back in lockdown here in New Zealand, at least for the next few days, and we'll see uh, how it's going to play out from here. But regardless, uh, especially for those who are in the US, the UK, and other parts of the world that are that are still seriously feeling the, um, the devastating impacts of this pandemic, some of you have been in lockdown for a long, long time now. So thinking of you and hoping that we all find a way through this together soon, uh, that would be a beautiful and good thing. I'm excited about this year of In The Shift and the kinds of things we've got lined up to talk about. Uh, I'm looking forward to bringing you those conversations and bringing you more uh, chats with interesting people, as well as sharing my own ramblings and rantings of a theological nature. So uh, get into it. Um, the first episode, this this first episode of the new year, is actually bringing to you a conversation I had towards the end of last year uh, that didn't get released before Christmas. And it's a conversation with uh, Paul Young, who's the author of The Shack uh, and a number of other books who some of you may have heard of, and also Bradley Jersick, who's a theologian and author who's written on um, the nature of uh, the topic of hell and uh, what might be going on in the New Testament texts around that, as well as talking about uh, Christ. He's quite interested in, in Jesus and what it is to, to follow a more Christ-like way. Uh, and they've written together a novella called The Pastor. And it's a, it's a story about a fundamentalist pastor who has a, a full-on breakdown and ends up in a, in a psych ward. And it's the journey of his kind of uh, internal wrestling and processing of what it is that's led him to that point in his life. It's a um, visceral, kind of potent, intense book. Uh, you know, it's not the kind of story you're going to read your children at bedtime. Uh, it, it wrestles with some weighty matters. Uh, and there is a trigger warning on the book because it does deal with matters of abuse of power, of sexual abuse and assault and other pretty challenging uh, topics of conversation. And so be mindful of that if you do go read the book. And also in this conversation that I've had with Paul and Brad, uh, they share pretty honestly both about their own experiences of sexual abuse as well as um, some of the people they've worked with and the reflections and the conversations they've had and how those insights have made their way into uh, this book that they've written together called The Pastor. And so I want you to be mindful of that. If that is not something that you would find particularly helpful right now in your journey or you'd find it triggering or you'd find it um, unhelpful, um, then please, you, there's a couple of options you've got. One is you can skip this episode entirely, or the other is that you can skip to the second half of our conversation in this episode, because the second half of our conversation is dealing much more broadly with issues of fundamentalism, of uh, hierarchical leadership, of the abuse of sort of, of power systems and structures, uh, and of kind of what it looks like really to follow this Jesus way. And so... Uh, if you want to pick up from around sort of 27, 28 minutes into the podcast, then you'll find yourself skipping some more of that uh, weighty conversation around around abuse and forgiveness and some of the trauma that's associated with that journey. And you'll jump ahead to that next 
part of our conversation. So you can skip the entire episode or you can just skip sort of ahead to halfway through. Uh, So I'll leave that decision in your hands depending on what you feel like is most helpful or what you're most ready for. Uh, Other than that, I just want to bring you the conversation that we've had. So this is episode 41 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Well, today on the podcast, I have the privilege of of not just having one, but two guests, uh, Brad Jersick and Paul Young, two Christian thinkers, theologians, authors, uh, and collaborators on a new book together this year, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, Thanks so much to both of you for joining me from your various spots in the world. Uh, I want to start out actually by thanking both of you. Uh, Both of your writings have intersected my own journey at different points. Uh, Paul, I was thinking about when I first read The Shack, back when I was in a Pentecostal megachurch, um, with all of these questions sort of... Shame sit- on you. <laughs> 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 and uh, and I had these questions kind of bubbling away under the surface, and you kind of, everywhere you're looking, you're looking for someone who might give you permission to have that conversation, you know, or to, or to, to discover a, the possibility that maybe thinking about God differently might be all right. Uh, and so... Yeah. So uh, I really appreciate uh, that honored. that work. Honored at, at to be that in time. that space, holy uh, ground, indeed. And then, um, and then, Brad. More more recently, I guess, in particular, as as my journey continued and and looking at conversations around hell and judgment and 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 the nature of God as being shaped by Jesus and and some of that has been helpful to me as well as incredibly helpful resource that I can recommend to other people who are trying to go on the journey, but who still, yeah. in some way, want to remain committed. To faith, right? Um, so, yeah, thanks. Thanks to both of you for the various contributions to my own life, I guess. You're welcome. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about this book that you have authored together, uh, published this year. It's called The Pastor, A Crisis. And um, it's, a, it's a relatively short novel. But it's a novella. Novella. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, but uh, int- an intense one, I think it's fair to say, not for the faint-hearted. Beautifully um, brutal, as a friend yeah, said. <laughs> Indeed. Um, about a fundamentalist pastor in a, who ends up in a, in a psych ward. Um, could you tell me a little bit about um, what the impetus was for the book how, and actually how you came to collaborate together on the project? Um, Paul, I don't Go know. Go for it, Brad. Oh, Brad. You, I'll, you, I'll you start with yourself. Brad. Sure. Um, so I would say the, the, the impetus would be the stories of real lives that Paul and I encounter all the time Mm. and giving those stories a voice through the very characters, various characters in this novella um, that you're getting authentic kind of rawness from, from those who, you know, we know personally and in ways that we've experienced trauma ourselves and also healing. And so I think I think that's really what generated the seed of this of this book was how do we speak these truths um, through the genre of fiction um, so that it bypasses uh, an academic approach mm. and and really says you know the, these are real lives that have that we're portraying in in that genre because Paul and I both have a deep belief that fiction is a powerful delivery tool to the heart 
um, in ways that often nonfiction aren't. And so uh, where I came into it was uh, with a desire to, to approach the er areas of, let's say, uh, uh, abuse and so on using fiction. But I knew that I needed a collaborator to make sure that, you know, nonfiction Brad didn't just get all <laughs> preachy and an agenda driven. And uh, who better to ask than my friend Paul Young. And I was so delighted when when uh, he agreed to co-write something, you know, with his reputation as a seasoned storyteller and author, um, in that sense, it was a kind of beautiful mentoring for me in, in how to address important truths in in a in narrative that is not is not factual but absolutely true mm. over to you paul so um i want to add that 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 brad has an unusual capacity for pastoral love caring I, and i think part of i do too in a, in a way in my own way and part of it i think is that we've both been to hell and back, you know, yeah. or, you know, and, and, and so that we, we know what it's like to be lost in that sense. And, um, and, and, to, you know, two of the big questions in the book really that are sort of behind the scenes are, is there anybody too broken to heal? You know, that they've just been so utterly dismantled by life. Mm. That, that that their healing is not an open way for them. And the other one would be, is there anyone whose, whose brokenness is so deep that they're irredeemable, right? Right. Because there's something about the warp and woof of, of growing up in a broken world where, where, it's disappointing that God is not retributive and vengeful the way that we were taught because we really have a deep desire for someone to pay. Mm. And, um, and so, uh, you know, vengeance fantasies are, are common to, to our brokenness. And, um, and so the pastor is, he's not, he is not a lovable human being at first, at first glance. In fact, um, Brad has a great, great little conversation that someone sent him and you can tell about her, Brad, and about, uh, the, this is the runner. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the women who read this, um, you know, she grew up being passed around first out of, um, both parents as addicts and then through a series of foster families some of which uh, were horrendous abusive experiences out of that she's developed her own ways of coping and and one of that is you know in in the hatred of her own body because mm. of you know whatever um r really uh, uh serious eating disorder and and um some of your listeners may not understand that you know binge and purge bulimia uh, does not always take the form of throwing up um, that you can use excessive workouts as a form of bulimia. Right. So, you know, she eats a cookie and then she has to run a full marathon, mm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, but 
she got halfway through one of these runs after a rough night with two cookies, you know, and she stops and, and, and what she realized was, uh, first of all, I, um, I hated the pastor at first, she said, I hated him. And then in the end, I loved him. And then, which left her with mixed feelings because Mm -hmm. then she said, maybe that means I could love me too. And maybe God loves me too. And so you could just see how the novel is, is working out the self-hatred to, uh, you know, by her identification Mm. ultimately with, with someone. And you just, you wouldn't think that someone who'd been through what she'd been through would hate herself in the way she'd hate this predator. Right. And yet she did. Mm. And um, can we hand over our abuser? Can we hand over ourselves? Can there be healing when you can't imagine letting go? Mm. And um, I believe that when our book suggests a way forward, um, that, that that's authentic and it's coming from real lives like that of Jackie. And so once again, this morning, she recognized how she was abusing herself mm. and, and again, had to surrender her body mm. and even used the imagery of um, that statue by Michelangelo in the Vatican of, of Mary holding the broken body of Jesus mm. and saying, can, can you hand over your body? Can you stop abusing it? for the ways it betrayed you and, and see how broken it is and let Jesus or let Mary or whoever just hold it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, over the course of a few hours, she went from hysterical sobbing. That's how she described it to surrender in peace. Mm-hmm. And, and for Jackie, we, we always have fresh stories because it's a, every day she mm-hmm. has to do this again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it kind of reminds me in some sense of on one level the almost the absurdity of the idea of letting go and the idea of even forgiveness itself right on 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 a on a purely sort of if i sit down and look at this objectively it seems like an absurd way forward because who you know people don't deserve that you know we we well, want we want vengeance you know there's yeah. there's absurdity to to the jesus way um, yeah well it's not just that it's that we're confused about what forgiveness is. Mm. We're, we're confused about what reconciliation is. And we've confused the two as the same thing. Right. Reconciliation is the rebuilding of trust. That's a whole long journey that requires the perpetrator to own what they've done, to confess what they've done, tell the truth about it, and then to change over time. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with a whole array of process when it comes to the, the journey of reconciliation. And reconciliation is fundamentally for the sake of the perpetrator. That's what will ultimately restore relationship. Right. Forgiveness is for the sake of the victim. Mm. It's not for the sake of the perpetrator. You don't forgive someone to, to fix them. You forgive someone to free yourself from what they've done, who they've been in your life, the experiences that shattered you, whatever. And so, you know, the picture of unforgiveness being that you've got a, your hands around someone's throat and, um, and you can't let them go. Mm. And so they, you, you almost turn them into a cloak you wear 
and you're dragging a corpse on your body because that person may not care if you're waiting for somebody else to change so that you can forgive them. You, you may be stuck forever, you know, mm. and it's, and it's like, no, this is not about them changing. It's about you letting them go. Mm. Right? right. And now it starts to make more sense. I was just in a conversation right before this and a gal brought this up. Her dad had, had been abusive to her and her sister. And she's like, I, there is nothing in me that wants to forgive. And I'm going, and I'm saying to her, get pissed off enough. Right? right. Because not only did he hurt you then, he continues to hurt you now. Mm. He continues to inhabit your memory and you're letting him do it. And, and Jesus, that's why Jesus says, look, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain of unforgiveness, be picked up and cast and thrown into the sea. Right? Yeah. And, and it's like, no, no, no. Forgiveness is, well, then the vengeance part of us comes up because we think if we forgive someone, then we're letting them off the hook. That's right. Right? Yeah. And, and part of that is we have a very demeaning view of the character and nature of God. And, and we need to move much more like George MacDonald, who says, this is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains. This is why God is a fiery fury. He's not out to hurt or commit violence against a human being, but he is absolutely opposed to that which keeps a human being locked up and, and in violation. Right. So he's mm. this is a God who is against everything that keeps us from being fully human and fully alive, regardless of whether you're the victim or the perpetrator or the victim and the perpetrator. Right. right. And so part of it is you got to you got to release your own throat. This is what's happening with Jackie right now. Mm. Is it is that she is taking her hands off her own throat? That's mm. her body. And. Boy, you know, because my part of my history is sexual abuse, and it is massively confusing to feel good about something that is so incredibly wrong, mm. right? So you have right, a bodily right. response that is that is separated from the sense of revulsion mm. that's at the core of something that is fundamentally wrong. Mm. And, and, and then you scramble. So if you've got, if that other person isn't there to punish, who are you going to punish? You know, yeah, right. the only perpetrator that you know. And, and that's what, and that's, that's self-harm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think also that, that differentiation between forgiveness and reconciliation is helpful too, from the perspective that sometimes I think the perpetrators of violence and abuse and, and not just in, this context, but even in the wider kind of systems of power that, that function in the world, can can weaponize forgiveness a little bit, right? So, oh, so you, you 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 abuse or oppress or cause suffering, and then you demand that those people forgive, so that you can essentially stop them from speaking up about the injustice and suffering that they're experiencing. That's religion exactly right. Yeah. yeah, religion weaponizes it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it says. Really, you need to do this for them. Mm. And, and the, the victim is going like, you know, it's like the, the picture I have in my mind of the, of the man who has committed adultery and the church has gathered around him and the wife and the kids are off to one side being absolutely ignored, right? Because right. they're doing the, the religious thing to 
quote unquote restore, but mm. they, they haven't identified with the victim at all. And part of the beauty of Jesus is a constant identification with the victim. Yeah, right. I mean, the you Jesus, yeah, bread. Sense yeah. Of, you can't, like, I remember being told, and and this being a common thing, is you can't be healed unless you forgive. Um, and so, so in that sense, it's this ultimatum. Mm. And yet, um, when we entered the the realm of inter, inner healing, we discovered that not to be true. We we found out that Jesus could come and lift the shame and the anger and all of that to enable forgiveness, mm. to empower forgiveness. It's like, oh, I can let this person go because Jesus has already <clears throat> touched that wound. Right. It's such a so good. It's a point. bit of chicken and an egg thing, mm. right? But it's but but in terms of weaponizing it's almost like we we taught people that god would withhold the healing until they did their forgiveness mm. part while right. they're still drowning in the wound yeah right and uh that's not been my experience of jesus mm. he wow. he is will that's he is really willing to make it natural yeah i think really even um, uh you know thinking about the the role that bad religion essentially can play in this it's interesting like growing up in you know in, in church and into my adult life, the classic testimony was I hit rock bottom and then found God and religion and it, and it made it all better, you know. Um, and yet this story that, that you're telling here and, and the stories of so many that I've spoken to is that rock bottom uh, isn't a pre-Christian um, experience, but for many is a is an experience. It's a human one. It's a human one. And, and religion can actually play a role in, in taking us to rock bottom when it when it's unhealthy, um, yeah. Uh, you, you, I think you say at one point in, in the book, rock bottom begins when every coping mechanism finally breaks under the weight of our secrets and the lies we tell ourselves to keep them hidden. Um, That's profound. And, and I and I struck by religion as a coping mechanism in that sense, right? Religion can huh. function as this this coping mechanism to keep us hidden. Actually, you watch that, sorry. I said, I don't know when it doesn't function as a coping mechanism. <laughs> give me, give me an example. You know? Yeah, yeah. It and so in that sense, we could like I kind of object when people say that my faith is a crutch, but there is a there is that sense sometimes where where we've used our faith as a crutch in in order to like prolong to prolong the problem, right? And. Uh, well, I'm going to comfort you and make you feel better so that you won't come, so that you won't find the dignity of your own bottom and surrender. And so in my in my world, um, bottom out no longer means go as low as you can go. Right. Bottom out just means wh- whatever floor you choose to surrender at and get off the elevator. <laughs> um, so you can bottom out. If bottoming out is the, the, the point of surrender, you, you can... You don't have to end up in a ditch first, but it just seems like many of us do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We have the soul strengths to persist in, 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 in our self-will. And, you know, thank God for both Paul and I that our, our soul strength gave out sooner than later. Yeah, um, no kidding. Yeah. So do you see, um, I mean, obviously it sounds like you do see something of your own experience in this story as well of, of no no question yeah it's i don't think you can write real you can write fiction without you being in it somewhere Mm. Mm. and um so even though the pastor is a composite character of of many different 
people and stories. Um, he also he also carries the mark of us, mm. you know, and, and we can see ourselves um, in that character. But yeah, all the characters are composite characters, and um, and so you know, there's redemption in characters in a way that you can see the redemption that's been in your own life or words and the mouth of characters. And one of the beautiful things about this is that some of the, some of the most direct and devastating dialogue actually is real. It comes from real texts and conversations and emails with, with real human beings. And we've used them with permission Mm. um, inside the mouth of some of the characters. Wow. Yeah. it's um, pretty potent. Thank uh, you. And, mm. and, and, you know, this is important too. There's a trigger warning on the book and mm. that's because of the, the, the kind, there's no gratuitous um, flaunting of darkness here, but there is an authentic awareness of it. Mm. And, uh, and the trigger is not, the trigger warning is not to impede someone's uh, from actively engaging with it is actually an invitation, but it's an invitation with knowledge, you know, and, mm. um, and that's exactly what we found so far is that it's the ripple effect of the book has gone out that those who have been egregiously hurt are the ones that are hearing the clearest mm. um, and with regard to their own responses in their own soul's journeys. Yeah, the penny dropped for me on that in one of our interviews when a, a woman who had read the book, she, as she's talking about it with us, she said, you know, like for her, the trigger warning was very real, but it was an invitation to healing. But what that looked like for her is she read the book, spent a couple hours locked in her bathroom, then didn't talk about it for three days with her husband, but then, and and catch, catch the um, biblical language on, on this, on the third day. <laughs> Uh, they were able to have a conversation about what it was that the book was uh, inviting her to talk about mm. that had remained in a closet to that point. So I'm grateful for that. That's that, that's what we signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. We want it to be helpful, you know, in yes. that sense. And and sometimes I, I watch somebody enter the descent where, you know, some memory that has been repressed for a long time gets triggered and comes to the surface. And we would, we would just love to see that, that process quickened Mm. if possible. And, and sometimes this kind of exposure helps. It helps in that because one is, a lot of times in, in our own damage, we think we're completely and utterly alone, that this is our unique experience. And, and, and to see it kind of incarnated in the pages of words is a helpful almost, and a hopeful yeah, thing. It almost becomes a form of solidarity too, right? When, yeah, when, you, when you find that your experience is, is not alone. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the Christ story as well. Um, I think one of the other things that's, that's dealt with here in, in, in the story is, is the spiritual leader, right? And and the split that so often happens actually for, for the spiritual yes. leader. I think at one, one point it talks about the spiritual leader masquerading as this contemplative spiritual figure, um, but there's darkness that's kind of hidden beneath the surface. Do you think that's, um, you know, do you think that's something that's 
that spiritual leaders in particular are susceptible to um, and and maybe why that might be the case if it is? Or do you think that's just a common human experience? I think, I think well, it is common human, but I think that the way hierarchical systems are structured, that leadership generally is more susceptible to hiddenness because mm. it a lot of times is perpetuated as one of the values you know that sense of distance and separation that marks their sense of identity and um, that you know some form of perfectionism is what is the requirement for leadership especially within spiritual um, categories not authenticity but mm. but persona right some perfection of persona. And so I think the religious systems generally are incredibly hard on, on leadership because of some of the philosophy of leadership that they have rather than, it's not servanthood. It's, it's power mm. in certain respects. Yeah. And speaking from the inside of the pastor's mind a little bit also that, He's a like a grossly amplified version mm. of of that tension that I think all of us who've been um, spiritual spokespeople of some sort can feel about. Look at I'm I'm preaching one thing and I'm not I'm not living up to it, you know. Because so I have an ideal, but anywhere that I'm not meeting the ideal, I feel like a hypocrite. Mm. And um, um, more so if you think the ideal is some kind of religious perfectionism or moralism. Now, if, if the, but for me, I wouldn't dare poke my head out of the, out of the pit. <laughs> if I hadn't shifted my idea of the ideal, mm. my, which is um, to, to share the good news of God's mercy that I've experienced. Oh, well, I can do that unashamedly, you know, yeah. I don't feel like a hypocrite when I'm doing that. Um, but as, but I think a lot of, a lot of pastors, they, they feel they are living a double life, even at, in milder versions. Mm, but mm. so if you, if you spike this up and redline it, you're like, the, the pastor is, is outing that problem in a sense. I think it's hugely ironic. And I think it's the Holy Spirit that, so many 12-step programs are in church basements. Mm. <laughs> you know, I just, I just think it's the, the beautiful irony of that is that there's a, that at the, at the bottom level, there is an invitation to, toward wholeness, you know. And, on, and brutal honesty, right? Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Brave investigation of your closets <laughs> that can only happen in the basement of, <laughs> yeah. of yeah, as opposed yeah. to the, the pastor's office is usually at the top yeah, of the yeah. building <laughs> and the 12 step programs at the bottom. Hey, I was literally in one yesterday. Oh, we know we I attended a 12 step meeting in a, in a church building that's open, open themselves, but happily, you know, it was on the ground floor at least. So that might be a parable too about <laughs> it is it's on um, the ground floor. It's where you build up from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, you know, I think about sort of pastors that I've, and I've been involved in, in, in ministry in various ways, but the pressure that comes on spiritual leaders to have an answer for everything. Right. So everybody, you, you're, you're, the, the spiritual leader is the one who's who's the fount of wisdom. And, uh, you know, I've been in churches and conferences and, and meetings where the, the pastors are 
We're going to talk about finances. So you roll out the pastor to talk about how they handle their finances. Now we're going to talk about sex and out comes the pastor to talk about how we're going to you know, deal with sex. And then we're going to talk about parenting and out comes the pastor again to talk about and 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 the pressure that both they are putting on themselves and then uh, through just that kind of practice, the pressure that is put back on them by the by the expectation of the, the people seems, strikes me as being a, a deeply unhealthy um, Amen. way of being. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, the idea of fundamentalism itself, there's this kind of play again and play on this idea and the story of, of of the seeming contradiction between kind of this this fundamentalism and then and then abuse and and internalized pain. Um, this idea that maybe fundamentalism actually attracts people with internalized pain. Uh, do you think that's true? And and you know what is it about fundamentalism, perhaps that that seems to function in that kind of way for people with with deep internal pain? Well, I have at least one thought about that. Um, one is that when you're in have deeply internalized pain, often it's there's there's a connection to chaos, and life feels out of control. Yep. And you've been out of control, and so the the what fundamentalism offers you is control. And it right. offers you. I would have said. I would have said the exact same thing. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I beat you to it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Why don't you fill it in then, Paul? Well, that's that's fundamentally it's an issue of control. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, and you're right. In our lives, generally speaking, we're looking for control. And I think if you if you examine fundamentalist type religions of any sort. They, they grow rapidly inside places of utter chaos. Mm. And, um, and so it becomes, you know, it becomes an invitation to finally have some formula that will give you the right magic to have a sense of control over a chaotic world. Right. And, and that's and true it's a, with younger generations too, right? Mm. Like so there was this false impression that fundamentalism was the realm of old people. And now the young people were growing up and to be critical thinkers. And now they were going to be able to be more progressive and all of that. But there is, um, there is a revival of fundamentalism mm. among 20 somethings. And when I first read reports about this, it would be people who now are in their thirties where there's a, a whole temperament that is has become greatly weary of hard questions and gray areas and, and nuance and nuance and they are just like i'm i'm so exhausted by this just tell me what to believe mm. and so some of some christian movements are particularly known for um for offering certitude and okay, you want to know what to believe? We'll tell you. And they're like, oh, good. I don't have to think. And I've had, I've had young men, early 20s, say those words to me. Mm. I, I'm just so glad that I, I don't have to think anymore. <laughs> and um, so um, guess what? That's just not how life works. Mm. But there'll all be, that tells me there'll always be a market for it, unfortunately. Yeah. And we live in a, a chaotic world, right? And so, right. especially this year has been proven that in spades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and inside inside the chaos, you know, people are wanting to gravitate toward law and order or toward fundamentalist kinds of responses. 
it's it's a lot easier than growing in self-awareness and mm. self-consciousness. Indeed. I mean, even yeah. conspiracy theories are, are trying to do oh the same kind gosh. of thing, right? They are they're trying to give people a, an answer to the chaos. Yeah, yeah. My people are so good at that. You know, when Jesus didn't show up in 1987, it kind of set... It's it set the 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 plan for chaos theories to thrive within the American Christian community. You know, it's scary when you're a fundamentalist, where to to where forgiveness would require require you to let go of your ideology. I mean, that's rough. It's heresy. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, there's, I think. So, uh, there's a there's another line which which I just noticed and I think it relates to to what we're saying here which is uh, about the pastor where the boy became the beast he meant to slay right mm-hmm. uh, and this and I thought I read that and I just thought that's that's like a that's the human story um, redemptive violence you know becoming that which we hate I, I think about the Old Testament story of the Israelites the the slaves who are liberated and then become enslavers you know that um, every yeah. idealistic revolution probably ever, which is, yep. going, is going to, we'll overthrow them with violence, but then we'll be a better version and, and we're not um, because the, the means become the ends in, in many respects. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so what is it, what is in, in the Jesus way, do you think, that, that does offer us a different way of being human, offers us perhaps a path out, out of that just continuous cycle of violence and pain uh, returned and recycled um, over and over again? How does Jesus offer us a different way of being being human oh, in right. the midst of that? After you, Paul. That's a that's a setup for you, man. The Jesus way. This is Brad's Brad's trilogy is working on this. Yeah. Yeah, I've written a book called A More Christ-like Way, and it asks this question: is it like what is it to pick up the way of the cross? And really, it's not rocket science. It's memorizing for me, memorizing the Beatitudes and then saying asking God for the grace to live them. Um Give me the grace of poverty of spirit instead of the demands of my self-will. Give me the tears that mourn with those who mourn and mourn for my own wounds and mourn for the harm I've done. You know, give me me the meekness uh, to stand back instead of to climb over other people to my goals. And give me a hunger and thirst for justice that doesn't turn me into the beast I meant to slay. Give me the, the mercy in my very character, not just acts of mercy, but from the inside out that my instinct and impulse would be mercy for all. And, and uh, you know, that, that purify my heart with selfless love so that I could behold the crucified one and, and, and be inspired by that to, to empty myself for the sake of others. And, and, and then to, to, to be an agent of peacemaking in this world, reconciliation and tearing down walls that divide and, and, and then, and even to endure whatever um, derision that brings about when I'm called naive for thinking the Jesus way could actually work. So in other words, I, I'm praying the Beatitudes daily and, and, and the grace to live them as the Jesus way of the cross, which is really self-giving, radically forgiving, other-centered love. And, um, which is the very nature of the God who dwells in you. That is, that is the nature of God. Mm. Um, yeah. That's the God revealed on a cross. Um, 
and it's 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 not a god that appeals to those who would prefer a tribal warrior in our us them engagements and it it's not the all-powerful zeus who 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 would allegedly you know prevent all suffering in this world but he's the god who heard our groans and came down and co-suffered with us so um i guess that's it's for Paul and I, it's about the person of Jesus Christ at the end of the day. And um, he's shown us a better way to see God and to see humanity. Cause I think Jesus shows us not only what it is to be truly God, but he shows us the very apex of, of, of the, of humanity. I mean, it's the true humanism really. Hmm. It's beautiful. It's, um, it's much more <laughs> radical than, uh, oh, than, than praying more radical. Than, than praying the sinner's prayer, right? And then going to heaven when you die. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly much more radical yeah. than than just jumping on an ideology that's going to give you a, a community of, of rightness. Um, uh, you know, it, it is a radically subversive way of being in the world, right? Yep. And truly ex- existentialist. Maybe, Paul, mm. can you talk about our faith as existential for a few minutes? Sure. You know, there's a, a phrase that I've been working on for a number of years, and I'm working on it in terms of writing, too, and that is wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. You know, so what's the truth of your being? And this is where the revelation of Jesus becomes synonymous with the truth of your being, the nature and character of God. The image of God is Jesus, right? So right. every human being crafted in the image of God It doesn't mean that it was something done by a sculptor, a sculptor, to fashion you into something that looks like a little god. It's actually the sculptor embedding and becoming one with you so that the works of art are done in you, with you, as you, for you, by you, in cooperation of relationship. So you cannot... You cannot devoid the image of God from the relationship with the God who is the living one, right? Mm. Which is, which then brings suddenly every moment of every life, the way of our being, our existence, um, including our ethic, you know, all of these things then become that moment by moment expression of the truth of this relationship into the cosmos, and that happens one moment at a time. And, um, and so suddenly it's about, apart from him, you can do nothing. It's about abiding and remaining. And because you cannot produce fruit apart from the vine, you can't do it. And so the image of God is, is the presence of God in Jesus delivered to you by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if, and, and everyone is given life and breath and everything, right? And right. This, is, this is the beauty of it. And when you begin to see that the truth of my being is this um, not just interconnected, but irretrievable interwoven relationship that you can't talk about me, the truth of who I am, apart from the truth of the one who, who makes me real and true and right and good. And 
And suddenly it's like, ah, I am a forgiver. I am a forgiver. That is the truth of my being in whatever I'm exposed to today. I am a peacemaker. That's the truth of my being. Why? Because the, the peacemaker is indelibly woven into the fabric of my existence in a way that will never be separated. Right? That's a different, because we've seen the image of God as a commodity, like he gives you a spoonful of patience or a spoonful of this, or it's like, well, you know, we've made you into a little model of God. No, you're not a commodity. You're not, you're not a static being. Everything you are, your history and everything you brought to the table is woven in by the very presence of the exact image and representation of God. And that is Jesus. That's why Jesus is at the center of all of this for us. Does that make sense to you, Brad? Yeah, it becomes the, it becomes real in, it's not abstracted. So there was a form of like Luther where it's like you read the Sermon on the Mount and then you just admit this is far beyond me. So I don't obey it. I will cast myself on grace. Right. And in fact, he goes further and virtually says, you are betraying the gospel of grace. If you even try to obey this, you're not welcome to even attempt it. And that's not what Jesus says at the end of the sermon. He says, here's the wise man who built his house on the rock. The one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice or in Paul's language there, the one who sees the truth of their being and then enters the journey of it becoming the way of their being, the journey to wholeness that is very cross-shaped because it means letting go of stuff that we clung to dearly and crucifying Mm. attachments. There's this moment where the pastor describes uh, the presence of kindness and love as, as feeling like hell. And, and so I was thinking of your work, Brad, on, on, on hell, obviously, when, when I read that. Um, what do you, what's theologically going on in, in, in that kind of aspect of the story there, where this, this man is experiencing kindness as a, kind of, as a kind of hell? Well, we could talk George MacDonald, but let me start with my sister-in-law. Um, she had been, she is an addict who's now over 15 years sober, um, uh, she's the one in the gospel in chairs that we talk about um, sometimes. But and what she told me was was that the presence of unconditional love would trigger her towards relapse, and it felt like it felt like um, f- being surrounded by thorns, and it made her want to run. And I, and I think, uh, you know, the, the fire of God's love wants to burn up those thorns. But this is, it's very uncomfortable to the one who's not ready to surrender to it. And so the degree to which the presence and love of God feels like heaven or hell seems to have a lot to do with our willingness to receive or our impulse to resist. And so it's what, you know, the Bible calls also the coals of fire on your head. This isn't about God doing vengeance or me doing vengeance. It's just the reality that purifying love uh, can be uh, quite a difficult experience f- for those who feel it. Paul, pick it up from there. It You're the expose, expert on this. It exposes deep senses of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. And that becomes its own crown of thorns. 
right? Wow. And, and those of us who have been hurt and abused and experienced trauma, we've developed survival skills against abuse and trauma. We just don't have any against kindness and grace and love. And, and it's just like the only thing you can feel like doing is running from it, right? Because it's, it's so exposing. I sometimes talk about heaven and hell, not as any kind of destination, but as relationships to love, right? right? And so, uh, like Brad was saying, and it's just, just different ways of saying what Brad just said, and that was that it's, it's where you choose to abide. If you would choose to abide in your brokenness and your victimization and your false identities, and then the presence of true identity and true kindness and true goodness is, is an exposure. It's a, a light. Light came into the darkness, but human beings like darkness better than light because their deeds were evil. That is, the things that were done were, were breaking them, and, but they've identified with them. They, they think the way of their being is the truth of their being, right? And, and when, when you do that, then you're stuck. I mean, and, but, but you're also stuck because this love is, is not leaving. And not only not leaving in an outside sense, in an inside sense. So nothing is going to separate you from this love of God. And, and so to be in the presence of love and wanting to hold on to your stuff is like being in a fire and it's, it's hell. And um, so again, you want to hold on to your crap. The presence of love is hell. You want to let your crap go. The presence of love is heaven. Mm. Yeah. It's the same pillar of fire that is darkness and terror and storm to the Egyptians. That is warmth and light and guidance to the, Israelites. Israelites. Uh, it's the same fire that burns away the ropes and chains that held Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and felt like due to them that consumed their captors. And this becomes a metaphor in the early church for, for exactly what Paul's describing is God himself is the consuming fire. And, um, and God is love. And God is love. So I like, to, I like the phrase, the fire of the glory of the love of Jesus Christ, that fire that's in his eyes and that it can, and though it's uncomfortable, it does, it doesn't consume us. It, it consumes only the things that are killing us. He's the burning bush that's destroying mm. everything that is not alive. Without consuming the bush, you know, <laughs> like, right. so. Yeah. I think that, you know, if we're able to, to truly take that kind of language and, and paradigm on when we ding because there's so many when people read you know even the new testament um they come with this tradition that's told them this is how you're supposed to interpret all of that um which i think often misses the entire boat right of what's of what's going on there and what you guys are, are speaking to now and i think if, if if we're truly able to inhabit that way of understanding god in christ to us that fire is love. It, it transforms the entire way of seeing what's what's really going on, even in the language of 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 judgment or consequence, and you know that it's a transformation yep. of that entire conversation, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. Perhaps a perhaps a last question then. Um, perhaps and, and perhaps this is just um, to those who might be. Uh, asking themselves perhaps if it's okay to go on this journey of seeing God differently if if this is if this is really allowed 
you know, um, is, is this dangerous? Well, I have, I get these emails from people who have read the shack, right? Right. And they're from my people, modern evangelical fundamentalists. And, and they're like, I'm terrified to take the risk of trusting in a God who's this good and you're wrong and you're wrong. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, so you really want to live forever with that God that is punitive and retributive and, you know, narcissistic and, and no different than Molech and Baal. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's, you know, come on, take the risk. <laughs> cause, cause something inside of you is attracted to this, you know, the deep is calling to something deeper than the God that you thought existed. The one that's punitive and retributive. And just like, just like you are, you think you are in terms of your own hurt, brokenness and, and need for vengeance, right? You've created this God in your own image. At some point, maybe let him go, maybe, you know? Yeah, and, I, and, and folks that ask that tend to also have a, a deep commitment to faithfulness in scripture. Mm-hmm. And they're worried that, that, you know, that we're calling them to unfaithfulness. And so I want to speak their language for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gets on his knees and he prays to his Father in heaven that they would be given the Holy Spirit to glimpse what they cannot glimpse apart from a supernatural vision. And what what he's praying that they will see by, by the power of the Holy Spirit is that the love of God is higher, wider, deeper, and longer than they had ever imagined or could hope for. So then what I do is, let's say we have uh, someone who is asking Paul that kind of question, then I can just say, well, let's put your, the the view of God that you have had as judgmental, retributive, and pretty scary. Let's put that vision of God beside the vision of the Holy Trinity that you see in the shack, for example. And now Paul calls you to measure them. Which vision has a higher view of God? Which one is a longer view of God? Think duration, the love that endures forever, everlasting love. Um, the wider view of God that is inclusive of all people. The deeper view of God where he descends not into our own pain only, but right to the bottom of hell. Whichever one is higher, wider, longer, and deeper, Ephesians 3 requires you to opt for that one. And not only does it require you to opt for that one, but it tells you it's still not even far enough. Mm. Um, so, so when I when I think, how, let's say the shack or the love of God you see in the pastor or the the stuff we're kind of trying to, um, if if that sounds closer to infinite love than what you believe now, uh, you must go there. <laughs> um, if you need obligation, I guess. Um, but let's at least call it an invitation that, no, you won't be in trouble um, for believing that God's love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper. It might even be a sign that you're starting to see with the eyes of the Spirit. So so I hate to be pushy about it, but come on. That's a, that's a beautiful kind of push. Might drop. If I had one, I'd drop it. <laughs> um, I think that's a good place to, to finish. I think so, too. So thank you I think it's so beautiful. Much. Yeah, thank you. Ah, Bless you, Michael. to be with you. Love the Kiwis. So that was my conversation with Paul Young and Brad Jusick, and my thanks again to both of them for 
being willing to to write the book that they wrote and then to have the kind of complicated and difficult conversations that spin out of that and we're tackling some terrain that's really important but also can be hard to navigate for a lot of people. Uh, if uh, you're interested in more of their work, then of course you can look them up online. Uh, you can find their book, The Pastor, there as well. My thanks as always to Reese Michelle for helping uh, to take the raw product that I give him and zhuzh it somewhat so that it sounds okay in your ears. I'm looking forward to a good year of conversations and wrestling with important matters of belief and theology and spirituality and faith and life. So uh, until next time, we'll see you then.